Welcome FEI Engage subscribers. My name's Olivia Berkman, and this episode is a conversation with Venture Global LNG's Sarah Blake. Sarah discusses how she kept her team connected through COVID-19, managing family, and the power of stepping outside of your comfort zone. Please enjoy the conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Olivia Berkman. I'm the managing editor of FEI Daily and host of FEI's podcast, balance sheet. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Sarah Blake, Senior Vice President and Chief Accounting Officer at Venture Global LNG. Sarah was most recently the Vice President, Controller, and Chief Accounting Officer at AES Corporation, a leading multinational energy company. Prior to joining AES, she held roles in financial reporting and analysis at Gunnet. Sorry, did I say that right, Sarah? Yes, you did. Co Inc. and in public accounting with PwC. She has a Bachelor of Science in Accounting from the University of Virginia and is a CPA. Before you all meet Sarah, I'd like to highlight that our next speaker in the series will be Yang Zhu, Senior Vice President and Global Treasurer and Head of Corporate Development at the Kraft Heinz Company on August 18th. You can register for that at financialexecutives.org slash events. Now I'm happy to introduce you all to Sarah. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Olivia. Really excited to talk to everyone today. Me too. I'd love for you to start by just telling us a little bit about your home life during COVID over the last year and a half. I know you have three kids. So tell us, like, were they all home with you? And how did you manage all of that? Oh, it was a breeze. (laughs) No problem at all. Um, It was a challenge um, as as it was for, I think, probably most people. Um, Initially, when COVID um, started, I was working alongside my husband sharing a home office. We had uh, my three kids, like you mentioned, at the time they were in kindergarten, first and second grade, set up in our dining room across the hall from us so we could help them out because at that point in time, they were in public school. um, There was no live instruction um, and no new material was was um, taught to them during that time. So they had a couple activities a day that were posted on message boards, but it took, I mean, between 30 minutes and an hour for them to, to complete it. So the biggest challenge was really keeping them occupied and being able to continue working. That must've been so challenging. And just tell us again, the ages of your kids. At the Um, time, I guess. At the time, they were kindergarten, first, and second grade. Wow. So, So, yeah, did the burden fall more on you? Do you feel, or your husband? Like, how did you, how did you to get come together and figure out how you were going to keep them? Because you, you were both outnumbered. (laughs) We were, we were outnumbered. Um, I would say it was their their gut inclination out of the gate was probably to come to me. Um, but at the time, I had just started a new role, which I'll get into a little bit more as, as we talk today. Um, so I was really trying to engage my team and I was on a lot of calls. Um, my husband had fewer calls. So when I was on a call, they would they would go to him. But I think their gut inclination was probably to come come to me. And, you know, it was, I'm bored. What can I do? Things like that. So, um, we very quickly realized, and my kids are admittedly overscheduled as it is. Um, 
they're just better when they're busy. So, I mean, we pulled out all the stops, you know, we ordered crafts, we ordered school workbooks to supplement just anything to not have it be, um, parenting by iPad or, or TV, honestly. Yeah. I I think a lot of us fell victim to that, unfortunately, but I, it sounds like you, pulled it off, uh, for the most part. So congratulations on that <laughs> and managing a, a new job. That's, that's a lot to, to handle. Yeah, we, we managed, I will say we managed, um, our, our primary childcare provider or helper up to that point was my mother who lived down the street, but she was over 70. And so the, I mean, remember back to where it was in April of 2020, the last thing you wanted to do was to have, uh, elderly parent um, exposed to kids. Cause I mean, the only thing they had was playing outside with their friends. So they would play outside with their friends from time to time and God forbid, I, we would expose her. So it was really, it was really just, just on us, um, to, to care for them at that point. Everybody was just so panicked really. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. And, and we had the same situation with, with my mom, who's in her sixties. Uh, and she was always helping us with, with Julian. Uh, and it was really heartbreaking for them to have that separation for so long, especially my son being the age that he was, we, he didn't really understand FaceTime. So it was, it's really sad looking back on, on that time. And I'm just glad that we're, uh, I hope on the other, almost on the other side of it. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it changed over time. So what I've, what I've explained up to this point was kind of like that initial kind of spring of 2020, you know, everybody's in a panic sort of thing. And then we kind of got down to a rhythm, but then it turned into summer and, you know, everything's kind of, then, then you have even more free time on, on your hands. So at that point, um, my husband, um, took a step back and stopped working to pre to become the primary caregiver, um, to the kids during the day. Um, so that's been a real lifesaver during this school year. Um, cause I, I mean, I had just started a new job. Um, and so I really needed to stay plugged in with my team. I was building out a new team, hiring people. Um, so that was just how we chose to, to attack that problem. And it's, it's all trade-offs, right? Everybody's made trade-offs as part of this. That was the trade-off that, that we made. Um, and we learned our lesson, but by the fall, the kids had some semblance of school. They were not in person at all, but they had virtual school. So we set up, you know, desks and they had school iPads and things like that. But, um, you know, every, the wheels came off the bus at two twenty every day when school got out and I was still working. <laughs> Your poor husband, <laughs> but amazing that he was willing to do that. Yeah, it was a sacrifice. Yeah. I mean, it's a sacrifice for both of you. Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. So a couple things made it possible. Dedicated office space at home would have would have died without a dedicated office space with doors that closed. I, 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 I felt so bad when I would see people on teams calls and things like that. And they're, they're sitting in their kitchen and you can see the kids and the pets running in behind them. So I, I was really lucky that we had a dedicated office space and, you know, I did little things like bought a comfortable office chair which you never think that you need. I bought a uh, a stand for my computer. So I didn't have that like awkward, like looking down at your, you know, the horrible angle, um, from the webcam. Um, 
And my kids have been amazing through it. They knew when I was on a call to not come in. Um, but it also, I feel like it, it made things a lot more personable with the people that you work with. And they got to see you in a way that hopefully will never have to happen again. But they see that real, real side of you, which I think there is some benefit. And I was trying to build relationships with people at the time. So it wasn't, it wasn't the worst thing to happen. Um, I think the hardest part was really the creep of work because you're working and living in the same area. So you didn't have that drive home or that drive into work to sort of detach from the work time, which I was really good at doing before, you know, I had set, set, um, hours where I'd go and pick my kids up from school. And that was a lot harder to accomplish, um, with the remote work environment. Yeah, of course. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of people did, uh, you know, as much as we're all probably happy that we're not uh, commuting or commuting less than we used to, the commute did serve a purpose, which is to, you know, get uh, ready, get into the mindset of work and then to get out of the work mindset. Um, And it worked as a transition. So uh, we have to find other ways to do that, uh, whatever that is. Uh, I I do want to get into, you know, how you managed kind of starting a new role and and with a new team. Uh, But before, if you would just kind of walk us through your career since college. I gave a brief background, but I know there's a lot more to, to talk about. Sure. Uh, so you, you went to UVA. I went to UVA. Um, I grew up in the DC area. So I came back um, to the DC area after graduation, did the traditional sort of path, um, leave college, go to big four accounting. So I started at PwC. I was working in their audit practice. I stayed there until right before I was about to make manager and got an offer to go work for my client, which was Gannett. Uh, Gannett's the parent company of USA Today. I think they've split off since, but um, at the time they were the parent company of USA Today. So a big entertainment and media company. That was what I had been um, focused on um, industry-wise at PwC. So um, that's where I went to go work. Um, and, And then... When, when I went to go work from the client, it was interesting because, you know, that's a big, that's a big change. And that's a big change that a lot of people, especially accountants have to make. Um, and I did learn a couple things kind of reflecting back on, um, the transition out of big four. And, um, from an advice standpoint, I would say to people, I would say coming out of big four, I think people, think they know everything. Oh, they've been auditing these companies. I know exactly what they're doing. Um, and you honestly have very little appreciation for what goes on on the other side of things. Um, I thought it would be super seamless. I'm going to go work for a client of mine. And I think I was a little naive in thinking that I knew everything because I had audited this client. Um, there's all this behind the scenes stuff and anybody that's, that's transitioned into industry is probably nodding their head right now, knowing exactly what I mean. Um, 
But when you're an auditor, you think, oh, what is the client doing all day? All they're doing is preparing these these schedules that the auditors ask for. You know, it can't be that hard. But I I, I think you minimize and you, you don't you don't understand the effort that goes in, number one, to preparing those things. It's a it's a lot more than the effort as an auditor to review a schedule to actually prepare it. So that's number one. Um, and then there's all of these things that the auditor never sees and doesn't even know is going on behind the scenes. And that was kind of eye-opening to me when I, when I had my first role outside of public accounting, there's internal reporting, there's management requests, there's analysis of transactions that never go anywhere. Um, and, and you have no visibility into that as an auditor. So that was one of those aha moments that you go, wow, okay. Um, now I, I, I truly, understand better the perspective of those clients that I was working, um, working with before. So I was at Gannett for two years and, um, I decided, um, to make a change. Um, and I went back to PwC actually. So that's an unusual, um, part of my career. And I will say going back after being an industry, I was a much better auditor. Um, going back because I had that frame of mind, right? Um, I could ask better questions. I knew that there was more than just maybe what was on the set list of, of questions that the auditor always asked for year after year. So I think there's actually a tremendous value in working in industry and then coming back to public accounting that I, um, there, there's not a lot of people that have actually done that. Um, so I, I, I truly do acknowledge that. And I think it's something that people, people really actually should consider. Um, and these days, um, public accounting is really flexible. So I think it's, I think it's a career path that people probably should consider maybe more than they have in the past. I didn't stay in public accounting because as you get higher up in the firms, it's more that, um, sales becomes, becomes a motivating factor. And that's not really my, sweet spot. Um, so I didn't, I just stayed a year when I went back to PwC that second time. So I, I do want to, yeah, well, before, before you go, carry on, cause I know then you were at AES for, for quite a while. So I'm, I'm interested to hear um, that, but I do want to know, and this might be like a naive question, but <clears throat> the transition from PwC to Gannett, how, how did you, uh, kind of like stand out to, to Gannett? Like, like, this is something that I'm just, it's a world that I'm, that I'm, you know, I've dipped my toe into, but how does that happen? Like, what is it that, what was it about you, I guess, or the work that you did that made you stand out to them? Does that question make sense? Yeah, no, no, I, I understand. Cause they've got, you know, you know, 10 or so auditors that are in and out on a rotating basis. What, what made them, you know, say to me, Hey, would you be interested in the job? And it's, it's, right. it's, it's, it's an uncomfortable thing because now actually you can't do that. Um, there's independence requirements. Um, so you can't go directly to a client. But, um, I think when I went to get I think it was the last year before those rules changed. I think it was probably, being approachable, being somebody that they would want to work with from a personal standpoint, and then also showing them that I understood the the technical side of things too. So I think you really need to demonstrate both of those things. It's not just 
people are looking, people are thinking of you not only as a technically proficient auditor, but if they also feel like they would want to work with you, I think that's probably the, the difference maker and why they would consider bringing somebody on board. It, it also helped that I already knew the big issues that they had been facing, right? So the transition, though I was coming from the auditor side of things, there was a lot that they didn't have to explain to me um, that from comparing me to someone that hadn't worked on the engagement before probably gave me an edge. That makes sense. Yeah. It it sounds like the uh, technical accounting or the, you know, the, the, the technical side is a given. And then if you are able to bring those soft skills to the table, that is kind of the differentiator. Is that fair to say? That's that's absolutely fair to say. And that's that's, I think, what has um, been kind of a cornerstone of of my style Um, when I've when I've talked to people and we've talked about my career and and why I've kind of gone the path that I that I have. I'm I'm fairly technical when it comes to the accounting skills, but I also think that I'm approachable and easy to talk to. And I, I enjoy mentoring people. So I'm 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 not you know, oh, I want to read the FASB and that's all I want to do. Um, some people that's, that's their jam. It's not mine. I, I like to be able to, to, to talk and interface, um, with people at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that does bring up a question that I was going to ask you later. And I, cause I do want to get back to, you know, the, the, your career path, but I, I was struck by something when you and I last spoke, uh, when you were talking about making the field exciting for yourself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I do think it's, it's, you know, it's interesting that you, the way that you've been able to do that, it does feel like it has a lot to do with your, uh, the connections that you're able to make with people. So if you don't mind, just t- Talk a little bit about that, like keeping yourself motivated to stay in the accounting finance space and, and not being, not allowing yourself to be bored, I guess. Is, is that, does that make sense? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think the way I keep it exciting is to keep up with networking activities. So I'm involved in, in FEI. That's, that's probably why we're talking today. Um, right now I'm the chair of FAR, which is the financial accounting and reporting round table. Um, I'm also a member of CFIT, the committee on finance and it. Um, so those are great networking opportunities where you get to talk about technical stuff, but also get a view outside of your company. Cause I think it's really easy to get very focused on just what's happening at your company. And that's great, but you lose perspective. I think a lot of times, and there's, there's no reason to not learn from what other people are doing out there. I'm a big believer in, in people don't need to reinvent the wheel. And if somebody has done something, um, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to leverage that and use that in my own, um, career and life and sharing those experiences creates bonds, creates networking. So for future, um, career opportunities, and you just kind of get the the best practices you get to learn. You get to learn by not making the mistake yourself. You can learn from someone else's mistake. 
Before we uh, jump back to your career path, a question from the audience that I think is uh, a good one for, for what we've been talking about. How important is having a background in public accounting, do you think? Can you succeed by skipping the big four and jumping right into management accounting? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, that's interesting. I mean, I'm going to date myself here because I, uh, when I was getting ready for this conference, I had something pop up on my personal email, 25th college anniversary. <laughs> Or a reunion. So it's been a while. Um, but when I came out of college, if you wanted to get to sort of the highest levels in accounting, I feel like you had to do that that public accounting thing. I think things are a lot more fluid now. I know when I'm interviewing candidates, that's not a make or break sort of um uh, role that someone has to have or they're they're not even considered. So I think there's a lot more flexibility now, especially when you talk about the the skill sets that are more important now than they were when I came out of school. I mean, the the IT and the the digital knowledge that's needed I think you learned some of that in public accounting, but I think there's other ways that you can learn that now. And that's a much more relevant and um, appropriate skill for people to have now than it was when I came out of college. So I, I don't think it's a it's a it's a it's a switch that you have to do. It's always a bonus. Um, but I don't think it's a necessary um, step in your career at this point. I think that's a great point about the the digital and 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 tech uh, know how. So let's get back to you went back to PwC, which sounds like was a great experience for you, even though it was just for a year. Uh, and then and then tell us from there forward. Right. So um, so th that's when I I would say and and one of one of the things that we talked about last time, Olivia was kind of stepping outside your comfort zone and. I get bored um, from time to time. So the, the roles that I have had since since leaving public accounting have always challenged me in different ways. So um, when I when I left public accounting, I, I stepped outside my comfort zone. Um, there's lots of different ways you can step outside your comfort zone, I think, um, industry wise. So I had been focused on the entertainment and media industry. So I went to energy, which I knew nothing about. Um, I knew a lot about financial reporting. That's what I had done at Gannett. So I stayed like skill set wise the same, but I went outside my comfort zone and went to a new industry. Um, but it was still kind of that, that financial reporting role. Um, so I was at AES for almost 14 years. Um, the first eight years that I was there, I was in financial reporting. I moved my way up um, in the SEC reporting side of things. Then they consolidated um, the consolidations group into SEC reporting. So it was all, all things financial reporting. And then about eight years into my career at AES, I was asked by my boss at the time, she came from GE and GE is known for doing a lot of rotations, right? So she asked me to take over the technical accounting group. That was an intimidating thing because AES is very complex when it comes to technical accounting issues. It's a multinational company. There's derivatives. There's foreign currency. I mean, it's it's not just sort of your vanilla um, shop when it comes to accounting issues. Um, 
And it wasn't a convenient time for me to be thinking about a switch in roles. It was right as I had come back after my third maternity leave. Um, so I had three kids under the age of four. Um, and I'd only been focused on financial reporting up to this point, but I knew, so it was, it was take a leap of faith and go into this new role or stay in your sort of comfort zone, this financial reporting role that, that I was really good at too. And I kind of had that down, but I didn't want people to see me as a one trick pony. I, I knew I'd kind of hit my ceiling when it came. I, I led the financial reporting group. There was nowhere else to go except to do the same role at another company that was larger. There was, there was nothing else to do. Um, so I also knew that opportunities like that don't come up all the time and you're never going to feel, at least I don't think a hundred percent comfortable making a decision like that. So I, I said to myself, I need to have the same confidence that my boss who's asking me to do this has in me. So I went ahead and took the role. Um, and it was, it was amazing. It was, it's very technical, but I, and in the past people had been very, um, not as sort of my, my, my stronger sort of personality side of things in that role. So I kind of did something different with that role than my, than my predecessors had. And I used it as the opportunity to, um, interact with executive leadership. I got in front of the audit committee. Um, I was talking with, um, other people, other, functions outside of the accounting function who I, who I'd been around for eight years at AES, but I'd never actually talked to, um, and got to talk about potential transactions and strategy. So it was a different lens and it gave me a much wider sort of range and scope and reach within the company. So, um, I guess I was doing that for about a year and a half and I was asked again to take on a different role. And this one was the head of internal audit at AES. Um, this is, some, this was a role that I knew that I didn't want to have for a long term because I knew I'd kind of gone back to the auditing at PwC and I knew it wasn't like the thing that, that really got me excited and motivated. Um, but I also knew that it would give me, um, sort of a leg up on and finally be seen as a viable candidate for the chief accounting officer role, which is the role that I really kind of had my eye on. Um, internal audit also gave me direct access to the chair of the audit committee. I had one-on-one -on -one meetings with them. I also got to report to the CFO for the first time. So gained exposure to more of the executive leadership team. So I think that's one thing to, to consider when, when people are asked to take on a new role is what are the other components outside of maybe the day-to-day -day tasks that you can leverage and, and work to further develop yourself from a, from a professional and how will those make you more well-rounded to ultimately get to that, you know, quote unquote, dream job that you're looking for. So go ahead. Well, I know that you said that you get bored and that's a big reason why stepping outside of your comfort zone is, is, uh, that's a, a motivator for you to step outside of your comfort zone. How do you really push yourself though, to take that leap? Like, how do you know when it's the right time to take a leap? Cause I know it has served you very well, but you also admit that you've been hesitant to take yeah. the leap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's, it's not a clear cut decision. And sometimes you go back and you, you second guess yourself, but 
I have not I have not regretted any of the of the challenges that I've taken on. Um, I feel like things always happen for a reason. Um, and you're not locked into anything either, right? If you take a role and it doesn't work out, you can, you can pivot. Everybody can be agile. Um, it's, it's not like, it's not like, um, you have no other option out there. Um, and it's only going to benefit you and show that you're flexible to the people that, that are looking at you, and maybe maybe hadn't seen you as anything more than what you had worked on before, but now see you in a new light. Um, and the risks paid off because um, the the CAO that was in seat at the time um, ended up leaving, um, moving to another city, and uh, and I got the role much much sooner than I thought I would. I thought I'd have to be an internal audit for for a longer period of time, um, but. And I think a large part of that was because I had shown that flexibility and that willingness to sort of help out where needed and and capitalize on on what I could in the different positions. I'd love for you to now tell us a little bit about your transition to Venture Global, uh, because I know you started there only a few weeks, right? Before COVID, uh, starting a new job is already challenging on its own. So talk us through that, that transition. First of all, tell us a little bit about venture global and, and, you know, about the company. And then if you don't mind, tell us, uh, tell us how that transition went for you. Right. Right. So, um, Washington DC, which is where I live, is not a big energy metropolis. So when you get an opportunity to to get on board with another energy company, you really have to kind of take that seriously. And I was not looking for a job. I was cold called by a recruiter. Um, and it was, it was a difficult decision because I was sitting there, I was a CAO of an established Fortune 200 company, and I'm being asked to leave and go to a startup energy company. Um, but when I weighed the pros and cons, it gave me the opportunity to leverage the best practices that I had seen and helped develop over my tenure at AES. And I was going to be able to build an accounting team from the ground up. When I came on at Venture Global, there were six people in the accounting function. We're now at about 25. Um, so it, it was really exciting to me to be able to build something rather than maintain something that had been running, um, before. So that was the big appeal, but, you know, I changed companies, like you said, in February of 2020. So you see, you see where this is going. <laughs> We're pre-revenue venture global is pre-revenue. So we've been working on building out the controllership function and implementing new systems. So one of the other things that we did during COVID was implement a new ERP, but I've been able to leverage, you know, not only, not only the stuff that I did at AES, though that's probably colored my decision-making and, and experience more than anything else, but we're building a really strong foundation for when we start operations, which should be at some point this year um, for Venture Global. And it's really exciting to be able to work with the founders of the company. You know, I've, I've always inherited, see, 
um, CEOs that, you know, were not involved in the formation of a, of a company. And that's that was another really appealing thing about Venture Global, seeing the excitement talking to these two founders that it came from ideas on a piece of paper and seeing it in execution and seeing what was a dream for them uh, actually turn into a reality is, is really exciting and motivating. So six weeks into the job, COVID hit. And um, one of those six weeks I was on vacation because I had pre-planned that because I was at a public company and I was going on vacation with my family. We actually had a couple days off school. So five weeks in the office, COVID hits. So, I mean, the two biggest challenges were, you know, as you would expect, I needed to get to know the accounting team. I, I mean, I, I, I barely even knew how to get to the office at that point. I hadn't even played. I mean, in D.C., you have to kind of navigate around, figure out what's the most optimal way. I didn't even I had, didn't even have a set way of getting to the office at that point. And then also establishing relationships with my peers outside of my function, which is which is critical when you're leading a function, especially accounting, because you want to make sure that people come to you when they have issues or problems. So it's just as important to know people outside of your function as it is to get to know the team. So um and we're trying to get year-end financial statements out the door. So for all the accountants that are listening, you know, I, I come on, it's, it was January 31st, actually, that I started. So year-end is done. We're trying to get year-end financial statements out the door. I'm trying to understand them because I have to sign off on them as the chief accounting officer. Um, so at the outset, I set up weekly update emails to the CEOs because CEOs are super busy um, just so they knew what we were doing. Um, and we were very much um, and still are very much a, an in-person work environment. So I wanted them to have the benefit of feeling plugged into what the team was doing and what we were accomplishing to make them feel a little bit more comfortable that things were still being done, even though they, they couldn't see what was being done. Um, because we also didn't have a CFO at the time. So I was reporting directly up to the CEOs and then also had the regular touch points with key members of the team. But you know, it was a small team. So we were onboarding people. We were recruiting. I mean, I can't tell you, I think we onboarded about 15 people during COVID. Most of them started remote. So got their computer sent to them through the mail, the setup, all of that. I don't even know what that looks and feels like. Um, but yeah, so it was it was it was a major challenge to build out a new team as well as processes um, through a remote environment. That's, <laughs> it's it's a wild experience, and it's interesting because earlier when we were talking, I had assumed that getting to know your team and your peers would be extra challenging remotely. But it's interesting that you had pointed out that in some ways maybe it was easier because you were meeting people virtually in their homes. So it's, it's like, I never thought about it that way. You're meeting people maybe for the first time and yes, it's remote. So it's, it's not, you're not getting the same feeling as being in person, but you're getting more insight into their, their lives. So that's an interesting point that you made earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my team probably hated me for this at the outset, but they understood the method to my madness. After the fact, I had a strict camera on 
policy, we use Microsoft Teams. And um, so there's tons of capabilities in Teams um, from a collaboration standpoint. And I had several people say to me, kind of reflecting after the fact, I didn't understand why you always insisted on the cameras on. But I mean, we barely knew each other when this started. And I knew that if all I saw was somebody's initials and heard their voice, I mean, that wasn't going to be an, uh, an effective way to build a team. So, you know, everybody, there was lots of comedy that ensued, you know, people's kids, people's pets, um, spouses, uh, there was nothing catastrophic. There was nothing, um, nothing, uh, unorthodox that came up, but it, you know, it, it, it kept the levity up. Um, and it made people understand that they see a different side, a maybe more personal side. And that's something that I'm super comfortable with. I, I really like sharing stuff about my personal life with, with people that I work with. I know some people really like to create distance between those two, but I like telling people about my kids, um, or my dogs or, or things like that. So it, it was very natural for me. Um, we also did the, you know, we utilize some of the fun functionality in teams. You know, we would have competitions who could come up with the funniest background or, you know, sending funny gifts, things like that. But it just shows everybody has a sense of humor and a personality. Um, everybody knows my kids. They weren't, they weren't on camera a lot. So it's, it's, it's not like it was an everyday sort of thing, but they'd see somebody, um, my printer happened to be right behind where my white office setup was at home. So one of the kids would come and get a piece of paper off the printer. And so they, they'd see them then. And everybody knew that my husband had, you know, a Lego death star sitting behind me. I had, I had, I had the auditors even mentioned it, um, when we talked. So I think stuff like that actually, actually helps, but there, honestly, there's nothing like in person. My company's one of the earliest, probably that came back. We came back at the end of April when some of the restrictions were lifted in Virginia. And, um, I thought we were doing a really good job connecting everybody. I mean, sometimes it felt a little, a little disjointed and a little disingenuous, but we did the best we could. Um, but I will say after we did the first Q, um, not Q, um, first quarterly financial statements, I get confused with the uh, lack of uh, public filing stuff now. Um, when we issued our Q1 financial statements, we had a real proper happy hour at a local beer garden down the street from us. And it was so amazing. It was so amazing. People being like cooped up and then all of a yeah. sudden <laughs> unleashed on a happy hour. Yeah. Yeah. And I can only a, imagine. It was so nice because, you know, it was outside. So everybody felt pretty comfortable. It was May. So most of us had already had a chance to get vaccinated because we were actually, because we're an energy company, we were one in, in one of those early groups. So it, it, it felt like, it felt like 2019. <laughs> I, I'll admit when you, when we spoke and you told me that you had made uh, being on camera, a mandatory thing for your meetings or a highly encouraged thing for your meetings. I, there was like a part of me that was like, Ooh, like, I don't know that I would have liked that because I'll admit I took a lot of calls. I would sometimes be the only person on the you know screen who was blacked out because, uh, I, you know, my kid was running around in a diaper or whatever, but the more you and I talked about it and I understood that 
you were asking for people to be on camera, but you were not asking for them to show up in a strictly professional manner where, you know, maybe they're dressed just for work and uh, they're in a quiet space and they have their own private office area. You were just saying, look, come as you are, (laughs) but I have to get to know you. And I, and I totally appreciate that. And I, it's, it's good to hear that your team also, you know, was able to appreciate that. Yeah. They realized there was a method to my madness. It wasn't just me trying to, trying to control the situation. Right. And it it made it, it made it a lot, made it a lot easier once we were back in, in person. The only thing you had to, had to figure out was how tall people were, how short they were. Voices sounded a little bit different, but at least you knew their faces. Right. Tell me about some of the leadership lessons that you've learned, not just going through, you know, COVID, but just transitioning into a, you know, into a new role and, and being with, a, I guess the team was already uh, established though it was small. Right. And then you were adding people on. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the big takeaways that you think you'll carry with you going forward? I would, I would say, <laughs> Don't be intimidated by something new if you think it's going to help round out your your overall sort of career path. Um, it's not going to feel seamless and and 100 percent natural out of the box. And that's OK. A little bit of uncomfortableness is is to be expected. Now, if it lasts too long, maybe maybe then there's an issue, but don't be intimidated by, by taking on something new because you're waiting for the, the perfect opportunity and everything to feel a hundred percent right. Because maybe it's just me, but nothing's ever going to feel a hundred percent right. Especially when you're making a big career change. Um, so I, I mean, with me leaving a yes, I mean, that was 14 years. That was a huge, it was a huge decision for me. Um, the other thing I would say is when you consider new roles, is focusing on broadening your skill set versus just staying in that same sort of path. And that's also a lot easier to do earlier in your career versus later. I think people get very specialized and, you know, I think it's that comfort factor, right? People want to stay in that sort of like, you know, this is my, this is my home base. This is my, this is my safe spot, but it's much easier to kind of broaden that skill set when you're, when you're at the lower levels. Um, but then conversely, don't make a change just for the sake of change. Um, trust your gut when it comes to career opportunities. It's not going to lead you in the wrong um, way. And if it if you have to recalibrate, that's OK. That doesn't mean it wasn't something that you learn from. I'm a huge believer. All the people that work for me, if, if anyone's listening, is probably rolling their eyes right now. I'm a huge believer in learning from the mistakes as long as you don't repeat them. Those are the things that that live with you for forever. And you never forget, oh, I will never make X, Y, Z mistake again. So as long as you can recalibrate and readjust moving forward, I think that's an important lesson. Um, But you also need to read the room when you, when you take on a new role, right? You can't just come in and be bullet in China shop and come in with, with sharp elbows and, and expect to, to gain respect from people right out of the gate. Take some time, get the lay of the new environment, 
get a feel for the key stakeholders and personalities because that that's huge. When you come in and you come from a respectful place, I think people give you that respect in return versus you coming in trying to take control of everything. That's just my personal style. Um, use past experience and past practice as a guide, but not as a crutch. Don't assume that how you did it and how it worked in your previous life and experience is going to easily fit into the mold of your of your new role and environment. It should inform, but it shouldn't it shouldn't be the, your only perspective. You have to be open. Um, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Um, I, I, I think as long as they're not as long as they're not career ending. <laughs> You can make mistakes. Everybody, everybody has, has, um, gives you some grace. Um, yeah, I think that's it. You know, I think that that's, that's great advice. And I'm, I, I was thinking about this while, while you were talking, the, the different personalities reading the room and the different personalities of, of the company. And you did so much hiring and I'm wondering when you are looking to hire somebody, obviously you're looking for that, you know, the technical skills beyond that. Are you typically looking for people who have the personability that you have? Are you looking for people who have those strong soft skills, the, you know, the future leaders, the, uh, the storytellers, are you looking for that? Or is that sort of secondary and, and you're really more focused on those, those technical skills as you're hiring? I guess my question is like, how much does cultural fit of the team come into play as you're hiring? Uh, it's definitely important. It depends on the role itself. So if you're hiring for some for somebody that needs to do a lot of negotiating between groups and getting information from people. So you think of your typical internal control role that has to come in and interview people and document what they're doing. That needs to be a little bit more approachable and soft and not threatening versus somebody coming in and being a technical accountant and they need to do the analysis. So it depends on the role, um, but you definitely have to trust your gut um, because th there have been some missteps in, in, in some of the, in some of the, um, decisions that I've made throughout my career. Um, and most of them, if I look back, I didn't, I didn't trust my gut on, on a, on a hire, um, that I made. And that's not just, that's not just here at venture global. That's, that's been universal. So I would say, trust your gut for sure. You're still, there's still going to be some, some misalignments in terms of, of expectations maybe. Um, but you also, you spend a lot of time with people, um, that you work with most of the time you spend more time with them a lot of times than you do with your significant other or your kids. I mean, you're all off doing your own thing during the day. So you want to, you want to be able to have a conversation. Um, but do you need to be best friends with them? No. Great point. A question from the audience, and I encourage everybody who's watching to submit their questions. Uh, and this is, speaking of uh, making a change, what advice do you give to someone leaving an established corporate job for a startup or venture funded position? How do you get comfortable with that risk? 
Uh, it's, I mean, I was, I was faced with the same thing. You need to do your diligence on, on the, the, the viability of the company that you're going to, um, especially, you know, if, if job security is important to you, you want to do your diligence on the company itself, not just the people that you're going to work with. So you want to make sure that it's going to be around, um, you also want to do your diligence on the people that you're going to work with. There's tons of opportunities to do that with LinkedIn platforms and, and things like that. Now, um, talk to, talk to your own network, see if they worked with, with, with people, um, get a feel from the recruiter, ask to talk to peers that you may be working with it at that company. Um, sometimes the interviewing process only, only entails, you know, the, the, the people that you report to, if you're, if you're still on the fence, ask to talk to some of the people that you're going to be working with at the company. Um, that helps a lot as well. And I thought you made a great point earlier about meeting the founders and being inspired by their passion. So I would think that's part of it too. Like if you can, if you can connect with people, if it is a startup and you can connect with the people who were there at the beginning, um, feeling their passion, I think would, would definitely, uh, excite, you know, excite somebody who was a little nervous about making that leap. Absolutely. I mean, you go, you go from when you, when you go from an established corporate culture where everything is so focused on the operating results of the company and you're moving to a startup, which, you know, a lot of times maybe they don't have revenue. I mean, like the position that we're in. And so you have to really change your mindset into what, how do you evaluate a company that, that doesn't have any revenue? Um, so, you know, you, 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 you work your network, you talk to people, you trust your gut is what I would say. Mm -hmm. Another question from the audience. Energy has been a traditionally male dominated industry. Do you see that as well? Have you, have you seen that in, in your time in the industry and um, how do you navigate that? Excellent point. Uh, I would say Typically, I think that has been the case. I think that has shifted maybe in the last 15, 20 years. I see it being more male dominated in certain aspects of it. So um, sometimes it's more on the engineering side, but on, on the finance side, I would say it's it's probably a pretty good equal split. Um, but navigating that, it's as much of a challenge industry agnostic. Um, there's, there's challenges when, um, when you're a female and you, you're sometimes the default parent. Um, so I, I think that's sort of industry agnostic and that's where you just have to, you have to draw the lines and get clear expectations with the people that you're working with about what's important to you. That's, you know, a benefit right now of, of the remote working environment and the flexible work environment that, 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 um, I think a lot of companies are moving towards, but you have to be clear on those expectations and, and, um, be on the same page with your boss, but you, you have to be your best advocate yourself, honestly, and, and know what is a deal breaker for you and what's important for you. So, you know, if that's, if that's getting in early because you want to leave to, um, to go to a play or sports practice or something like that. Um, but 
these days, most most people are dual uh, income households. And so most men and women are dealing with the exact same challenges um, today. Yeah. And I love that your own family is a is a you know really cool example of that. What are the ways you think that the accounting profession has changed? I know we've touched on this really throughout the conversation, but what do you think the profession is like for the people, the generation coming into it now? So the, the Gen Zers, maybe the lower end of millennials, what do you mm-hmm. think the, the field is like at this point? Technology focused a hundred percent. It is so important. Um, the, the traditional accounting roles that were around even 10 years ago, are going to be obsolete in the next 10 years. So sharpening those those skills on the on the digital and the technology side of things, I think is going to be really important if you just if you just sit on the sidelines and and hang on to 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 the the manual stuff, I, I think you're going to be surprised. I mean, first it was outsourcing, right? So things would go to lower cost, um, either portions of the United States or countries, and now things are being automated. Um, and the major benefit of that is is not just is not just cost, but it's lower risk when you have a computer doing something versus a, versus a human. You you take out that that human error. So, and honestly, the technology stuff is really fun. It's exciting, and you can maintain the same things that you maybe have been working on before. So maybe maybe you're an accounts payable um, focused person. There's always going to need need to be manual supervision and review of that function, for example. But you can work with the technology side of things and come up with automated solutions to take out the stuff that you probably don't like doing anyway. Right. So uh, the technology thing, I think, is a game changer. And I think it's it's an exciting way to look at accounting in a different way. Um, So I would I would absolutely advocate for people to 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 study, um, whether it's taking a class, whether it's getting an advanced degree. Um, I don't know if you need an advanced degree at the, at this point. Um, but there's, there's tons of ways that you can sharpen your, your tools on the, on the technology and the digital stuff. Yeah, that's great advice. Is that something that you encourage in your team to like the continuing professional education and, and specifically in technology? It is, it is. Um, I was leading at AES, the global digital transformation effort. So I kind of got plugged into that, um, on the earlier side and I, um, I'm on CFIT like I, like I, um, earlier, uh, mentioned for FEI. So I, I, I make sure that people do, um, focus on that. And we had, we had kind of a real life example of that because we were implementing a new ERP this year. So it got some people really excited and we've expanded some responsibilities for those people that had that aptitude, um, when it comes to digital stuff. Great. Sarah, we have time for one last question. This is from the audience as well. Prices are going up in many areas, including natural gas. How does this impact things on the financial side adventure? Uh, it's, I, I, there's, there's certain things that I can share and can't share. Um, it's all about mitigating your risk and how you've structured contracts, um, and how you can, um, 
enter into contracts to make sure that you are protecting yourself against price volatility, which is what we try and do. Um, we have long-term we have long-term contracts in place um, for our uh, facilities, which is how we manage it. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. It's really been a pleasure getting to know you over these last uh, couple months and, and getting to know you even better today. And I know the audience will feel the same. And uh, I just want to really thank you for your openness and your great advice, very thoughtful advice. Uh, I know that there are, are going to be a lot of takeaways for the attendees. So thank you. You're welcome. It was really nice to talk to you. 